his attitude towards uh, approaching a clinical encounter, he said, is, is, yeah, like being a detective. And when you get there, you're almost like, oh, look, a crime scene. Fascinating. Look, there's been a murder. There's something going on here. We've got to figure it out. That attitude of curiosity is, is at the heart of his clinical approach. And I've kind of gotten that from him. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. One of the things I love about having a teenager in the house is when I hear her say, I've got a question. It never fails to grab my attention and my delight. I've got a question. The kid rarely comes out with proclamations or demands. She trades more in questions and inquiry. I love the invitation to join her in leaning into uncertainty and to craft a new frame on the world. I have a question. It means we're about to go on a journey of some sort. Learn something about the world, our place in it, or our influence on it. And the thing about questions is that it makes us more vulnerable. Vulnerable to the moment, to each other, and to the question itself. Questions are a kind of catalyst. They create connections where previously none existed. They are destructive in that they can bust apart the ways we've previously woven the world together. And questions are an invitation to hold ourselves both more lightly and at the same time sink our roots into something with a solidity which in turn gives us a reliable ground upon which to move forth. Questions are a bit like shedding a skin, stepping out from the protective illusion that we understand the world and risk knowing for understanding. A good question quickens the heart and it livelies up the mind. There's a hint of danger and questions carry the scent of the unknown. Questions inoculate us against dogma and ideology. They help us to remain lingua, to remain lively and flexible in the face of our own and others' stalwart stances toward the world. A good question, it'll undo you like a love affair. Melt your barriers, opinions, and prejudice, and leave you tenderly aware of something delicious and inviting. The best questions are not about coming up with the right answer, but more about engaging a process that allows you to see the world with an unguarded and inquisitive mind. They don't forcefully break our cognitive models, but rather soften them up and leave us available to new information. Good questions take us into the magic of timelessness, allow us to remember what eternity feels like, and the shared exploration of a question creates bonds of connection and care for those with whom we share this journey. I have a question. It's a humble stance at the edge of the unknown that invites uncertainty to dance with what seems to be solid reality. It's like a hint of vertigo that in turn brings a more rooted sense into the moment. Questions are one of the most potent ways to engage another in play. A good question will make you less sure of yourself and at the same time whispers a promise. Mm, no, not a promise. It's more like a moment of clairvoyance where you get a glimpse of what's possible. Whether it's in our clinics with patients, the dinner table with our children, or the quiet still moments with ourselves, questions fuel our conversation with the world. Help us to find a grounding in the face of uncertainty. Act as a sort of compass in navigating the unknown and allow the wiser parts of ourselves to have a conversation with those parts still stuck in darkness or fear. While we are often sold on finding the right answer, it's the viable and lively questions that will take you so much further. In a moment, We'll get into a conversation about questions with my Shongdi from Beijing and Seattle, Jason Robertson.
Jason and I were having a conversation about some of the great questions that we've heard other practitioners use in their practices. You know, the kinds of questions where once you hear them, you wonder why you didn't think to ask it yourself. It sparked this conversation that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. 
If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. All right, friends, it's always a lively conversation with Jason Robertson. Let's get into this questioning about questions. Buckle up. Chongdi, Huaning Zai Geological. <laughs> Jason Robertson, it's so good to have you back on Geological, my friend. It's been, yeah. uh, when was the last time we did this, a year ago or something? It's been probably about a year since uh, we spoke last, yes. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be back with the uh, Dick Cavett of Chinese medicine here being interviewed. You can't say Dick Cavett. Most of the people listening to this would have no idea who Dick Cavett is. You have just dated yourself, dude. A certain interview style that I appreciate. Well, I wish I had his hair. Yeah. You know, he was a snappy dresser. Yeah. I mean, he looked great. Yeah. You need a blazer, at least from now on, when I see you on these podcasts. I imagine you in a blazer, actually. If you come to the thing that I'm doing with Sabina Wilms, uh-huh. you'll see me in a blazer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll do it. All right. I'll be looking. Last time we were together, we were talking about stories, but lately we've just been having some online conversation about questions, like the power of questions. And I'm not talking like the 10 questions that you learn in Chinese medicine school, but it's like the really cool questions that you hear your practitioner friends asking when you're like hanging in clinic with them, you know, it's just like the importance and the power of what a question will open up. Well, and that is what we began talking about when we were kind of just hashing out, uh, you know, what's on our mind these days. And, and, and I think, I don't know why you and I were talking on the phone, but I was saying that it would be really great to kind of collect the menagerie of questions that all of our friends and colleagues and teachers ask. And, and all of you, I mean, I, I mean, I'm certain you've noticed that, you know, an experienced practitioner, often they'll ask a question. You're like, why in the heck did they ask that question? What information did that give them? Which direction did that take them? And we were like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could get like a bunch of experienced practitioners to, you know, go through some of their five or 10 favorite questions that take them down a different diagnostic track. And that, that was how this began. And I'll, and I'll, you know, I've been thinking about it since then, and I have other ideas I want to get to, I guess, if you, if you don't mind, but, but that's where we started, right? That's where we started. And you know, the, the fun thing about this is we start somewhere and it takes us somewhere else, right? You were talking about Dr. Wong and how he would talk about, you know, being a doctor is like being a detective, well, and as you might remember, the phrase I used was his attitude towards uh, approaching a clinical encounter, he said, is, is, yeah, like being a detective. And when you get there, you're almost like, oh, look, a crime scene. Fascinating. Look, there's been a murder. There's something going on here. We've got to figure it out. That attitude of curiosity is, the, is at the heart of his clinical approach. And I've kind of gotten that from him. And, and, and then because we were saying that, then I started to think like this whole discussion of questions I mean, what's really also important is to step even one step back from that and like, what is, what are we doing in the clinic? Why are we asking questions at all? And then what is the purpose of questioning is another thing I'd love to talk about. Well, why don't we start with that? That's a great place to start. What is the purpose of questioning? And that, you know, of course, 
you did mention the 10 questions, the basic thing that all students, you know, begin learning in like TCM style of education, which is crucially important stuff um, that, you know, there's the four diagnostic tools, Wang Wan Wan Chie. So you have Wang looking at patients, one, which could mm-hmm. be asking questions or smelling, depending on how you translate that character. And there's, they're both, I guess. The third one, which means, yes, asking questions and then Chie putting your hands on patients and checking the pulse or in the case of, of me, certainly checking along the distal channels through palpation. So you yeah, have man. these. When you put your hands on patients, it's, it's not just the pulse. It's, I mean, you're getting the whole backstory. And really that's what I was beginning to think is all four of those diagnostic parameters are maybe if we step way back, a form of dialogue, a form of question, a form of looking at the patient with a kind of call and response to get information. And so that is kind of the bigger meta thing. I think, uh, you know, as clinicians, we don't have, uh, we don't have blood tests that we're using in, in, in the, you know, traditional Chinese medical approach. We don't have x-rays. You know, we, we always talk about this, the skills are in our hands and in our minds. And this act of questioning is really like an act of getting to know the patient. And that gets to the other thing I wanted to say about is why we're asking questions is, we are trying to perceive something that's going on with our patient. And what Dr. Wong called that, and there's you know different thoughts about this throughout the history of Chinese medicine, is he's trying to perceive the Zheng. And when mm-hmm. we look at this character Zheng, and there's different debate about there, you know, I'm you know, of course, there's two different Zheng. There's the one that has the Bingzipong, the kind of like it looks like an illness under, you know, the character Zheng underneath the illness radical. And the other Zheng mm-hmm. that he's talking about, which we often translate as a pattern is a the left hand side of that character has the yanzapong has the the the, the radical that is associated speech with speech right mm-hmm. and so it's almost like interrogation of course in modern like legal chinese as well and so this this aspect of perceiving patterns that's what we're trying to get at when we are asking questions and palpating and smelling and and uh you know feeling the patients as well this is, you know, this process of perceiving Jung of which questioning is an underappreciated and crucial part. That's what I think would be really cool to, to talk about here a little bit. Well, that's, that's what we're here to talk about. And here's the other thing about Jung. Yeah. It also means evidence. Yeah. Right. It's like, we're back to what you were talking about earlier, right? Dr. Wong walks in, see a patient. Woo. Crime scene. Cool. Look, there's blood on the blood on the bookcase. Hmm. wonder what that means. Right. right. Yeah, it's like clue, right? Clue, clues and evidence. Yeah, well, like so, the game clue. I was thinking. Again, you're dating yourself. Yeah. All right. Okay. I loved Mr. Mustard. Yeah. <laughs> it was always him, anyway. <laughs> With the lead pipe. With a lead pipe, right? So that's it. That's what it was like. He was like, "This is it." And so when Dr. Wong had a patient in front of him, and back to the back to Dick Cavett as well, he was like a like a TV interviewer. He would have the person next to them, he'd be palpating along the channels. And as he was palpating, he was asking questions. And there's, so there's this dialogue with the hands, the chair part and the one part, the asking questions part. And he was doing both simultaneously. But the whole goal of this was not to chat the person up, not to hear their life story necessarily even, but to try to get to the heart of the Jung that was presenting in front of him today. And, and this is really the subject that when you first, when people listening right now, this like sounds like so obvious, but yet when we think about it in the clinic, we're often not doing the steps that he went through in his asking. I think that piece is, is so important as well. And, and I know for myself, when I think about treating someone, the thing that, that comes to mind first is what is it 
that's going on with them and what am I going to do? Right. Of course, that's the end piece. The very end piece is what I'm going to do. Right. But we often have to start with the end in mind. Yeah. But there's, I don't know about you. I mean, even though I've been doing this for a long time, new patient comes in, there's always that feeling that arises in me like, oh God, what am I going to do with this? You know? Yeah. Am I going to know case. what to do? Right. How am I going to know what to do? That is the giant question, right? That's the big question that overarches all of this. Exactly. For me, I have had to learn how to have dialogue and ask questions because I'm kind of lousy with other forms of diagnosis. Mm. And so I'd have to sit with patients for a long time and try to suss out what's going on with them, right? Because I'm not a great pulse taker. I don't necessarily see the colors in the face that well, right? When it, you know, when it comes to like thinking about, remember the TCM flow charts? It's like, oh, if they got this and it's that, and is it right. new deficiency or, you know, or, or young excess and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was terrible at that stuff, right? I'd have to talk to people long enough to kind of like wait for them to tell me, oh, here's what I need. And then I would go do it. And so then that's what, that, that is kind of what I guess Dr. Wong was circling around is in that process you're going through when you're talking to the patient and finding that that's really one of your great strengths diagnostically too. What is it you're like, what is, what is it you're trying to perceive, right? That's, that's the great question in clinical reasoning in Chinese medicine. What are we, what are we talking about? What is the goal and how do we become relatively organized and strategic about this versus just sitting in a room and talking to people? Right. Because I mean, it's one thing to chat someone up. It's not the same as getting useful diagnostic information. So let me give you an example. Woman comes in, she's got hot flashes. All right. And she sweats. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, I need to engage in a conversation now. It's like, I need to have a conversation with her yin. Hey yin, how you doing? Right. And then I need to have a conversation with her young, like young, how you doing? Yeah. And then I need to have a conversation with like her fluids. Hey fluids, how are you? So that's kind of how you think about it. You're having this dialogue with yin, yang, jin, ye, kind of. That's one part of it. And so you almost make a little turn in your brain where I'm going to think about yin, ask a few questions that relate to yin deficiency or yin excess or yang deficiency mm -hmm. and yang excess and, and maybe palpate or do something. Maybe not because you're doing questioning as far as urination and thirst and those. So you're, you're coming at it with that angle, you're right? Some palpating. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of that angle. And then here's the other thing. And this is where I think it gets really interesting because, you know, patients can really go off on a tangent sometimes. And sometimes I think it's a lot like fishing. It's like, okay, I haven't quite set the hook and they're kind of running with the line. At some point I'm gonna have to reel them in, mm -hmm. you know, you know how they go off with these different stories and things sometimes. Right. And you're like, okay, is there anything worthwhile in here or not? Right. Right. And you got to let it run a little bit. And then at a certain point, I feel like I need to set the hook. Right. Yeah. And that's the time where I want to ask them to go deeper into something that they just said, or maybe they just gave me a metaphor about what something's like. And I'll ask them to tell me more about that metaphor. Again, with the idea in mind that I'm, I'm inquiring about something that's going to help orient me toward what's going on with them. And that is the great debate as diagnosticians is, yeah, how to orient yourself. And one way, um, at least historically, is back to this idea of perceiving Jung, right? And so the way Dr. Wong described what you're, and, and you're describing actually, I think, a really, a, a slightly different, but also a really cool way to come at diagnosis by just, of course, beginning with yin and yang, quite obvious. So 
Um, the way Dr. Wong described it, and I also also think that like an experienced practitioner, you you or 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 Dr. Wong or anyone who's just been practicing for a while, when they try to explain what they're doing clinically, it's a it's a different effort to try to teach what you're doing versus just sitting there in the clinic and doing it. And mm-hmm. one of the the strengths, and so you you you've probably encountered really great practitioners, great physicians who aren't necessarily great teachers because that's a kind of a different skill in a way. And an, an experienced teacher, and this is what I've been working on for 10 years, and I'm still not good at it, but getting maybe better because I'm thinking about it, is like taking a person who's new to this concept of, say, asking, for example, and leading them through the door of just getting the getting oriented to this whole process. And it's almost like a set of training wheels that then as you go on and, and practice longer, the training wheels kind of fly off. And then you're asking questions where, like you said, like some metaphor the person said took you down a direction, but that's only because you'd seen patients in the past, you had certain experience, and the longer your experience gets, the better you're asking questions. So again, we come back to, let's pretend we're new at this. How do you orient yourself towards perceiving something that's clinically useful? And that that gets back to Jung. And um, if, if I'll, I'll just go on for just a moment about this because there's an interesting story and you know anyone listening to a podcast needs a break from dense theoretical thicket to take a break into a story. And Dr. Wong was trying to talk about this, uh, you know, the, the, like what the heck are we doing in the clinic once? And this was in, in France. He was teaching. That is a great question, isn't it? What yeah. the hell are we doing here? Right. And that was, and he was beginning you this that experience. You're sitting there with her, with your patient and you're like, <laughs> what? I mean, like, seriously, what right. are we doing here? Right. I mean, people come in. My, my first thing is I say is please complain. You know, here's an invitation. I'd like you to complain, but that, uh, but anyway, so, that, that you start with that. You say, please complain. Yes. Often. Yeah. I love that. That is, and I'll tell you why I love it. Yeah. Cause I so often have people say, you know, they, they get into it and they go, well, you know, I don't want to complain. Right. And it's like, for Christ's sake, you're at the doctor's office. You're supposed to complain. Right. I thrive on complaints. That's what I tell them. Please complain. But it's it's like you know it's an, it's it's a complaining in a certain controlled setting where there's a there, you actually have invitation is what it is it's an invitation right just don't hold back is kind of what you're saying right. so Dr Wong was talking about this idea like what are we doing in the clinic so just to paint the picture a bit so Dr Wong was in Paris he this is the first time he's taught in France and this was organized by a very well known French acupuncturist we probably had like I don't know three hundred people in the audience and there were chandeliers above giant windows, you know, shining in people had paid all this money to hear this guy come from China who supposedly had something very relevant to say and exciting. And, uh, we're all sitting there first morning. Now, of course the translator, uh, is translating from Chinese to French and I can't speak French. So I'm not translating for this particular lecture, but of course I'm listening to what Dr. Wong is saying in Chinese. And he begins by going, he begins this, you know, this three day event by talking about junk by talking about patterns mm-hmm. and you could like see in a way you look around the audience and, and you could see people like, Oh my God, wait a minute. Like we just paid all this money to be here with this famous guy. And he's going to say TCM one one like talking about s- patterns because he started saying, you know, when you have a patient, the first thing you want to focus on is, and this is the Chinese term is Zhu Zheng. Now we could call that. Now that's the other Zheng, by the way, that's not the pattern Zheng. That is actually a, a, a complaint or a symptom. And so mm-hmm. he was saying, focus on the primary complaint. And then all of your questioning 
has to then get to know that primary complaint. And so what he was saying was seemingly very simple, but also experienced practitioners, you know this, all of us have been in this moment in the clinic where you have a person, they tell you what's wrong with them. They give you shoulder pain, insomnia, whatever. And you're immediately thinking of the points you're going to use, or you're immediately thinking of a formula that you think will work. And you're not slowing down to go through a rigorous diagnostic process because you make that mistake of assuming you know it's in front of you. And he was trying to lay this out at the beginning, but it went really flat. And the translator who was translating, she was very experienced in Chinese herbal medicine, but had spent a lot less time translating acupuncture material. And, and, and she, she, of course, was not familiar with Dr. Wong and his way of thinking. So she was translating it and it, it like right out of the basic TCM textbook, like super simple. I, like you could see the audience being like, oh my God. And so he started to lose, and this one of the only times I saw, and so I could see for this, is you know, Dr. Wong was a very experienced teacher, but I could see that he realized he was kind of losing the audience because they were thinking, why are we starting with something so simple? I want something deep and obscure, you know, this experienced practitioner. And so he started trying to just get through it a little faster and simplifying his own lecture and it made it worse. And so, you know, by the end of this 45 minute presentation on questioning and perceiving patterns, uh, we took a break and immediately the organizer of the event was like swamped with people wanting their money back. They're like, come on, this is too basic. This is not what we paid for. And what Dr. Wong and I, as we talked about this later, he just realized that it's difficult to convey uh, the importance of these very simple steps of diagnostic process in, in, you know, in, in contrast to when people just want your magic point pairs or they want you to talk about how you treat a very difficult, you know, chronic illness or something. And they, you know, they, they want to go there before they get these first steps of, of perceiving Jung. And so what Dr. Wong said about perceiving Jung is he said, it's almost like an atom. It's like a three-dimensional thing. And you have at the center of it, the primary complaint, the chief complaint, but that doesn't mean you're looking for a, you know, an acupuncture formula that treats that primary complaint, right? You're like putting that in the center and then you ask questions that revolve around it, like spinning electrons that are like, okay, what is it? I, how can I get to know? What is the, the nature of the pulse? Tell me about that primary complaint. What does the way the tongue looks? Tell me about that primary complaint. And of course, this menagerie of questioning to try to get to know that primary complaint. And of course, all the other signs and symptoms, all the other complaints really have to be oriented towards knowing that primary complaint. And so absolutely, that, I just want to, I want yeah. to jump in for yeah, just please. a second with this, please jump in because it's so common that people come in, they got the primary complaint and then they got this laundry list of other things. And, and I know for myself, especially early on, I'm thinking, well, I'm a Chinese medicine guy. I should be able to take care of all this stuff. Well, maybe, but where do you start? What's actually important? If you can nail the patient down to, this is the primary thing. This is what we're here to do today. We're not here to do your shoulder and your menstruation and your anxiety and your insomnia. We're here to do your shoulder, right? Yeah. I mean, right? First, yeah. you want to make sure that they're there for the right thing. And that you both are on board with that's That's what we're trying to see, that if it changes, it was worth coming here today. That's right. And then, like you were just saying, how do the other things sit in relation to that? Now you've got something to ground you. Now you've got, now you've got a place to begin. But if you've got several complaints and they're all orbiting around each other, whew, try to, you know, try to do the geometry on that.
Well, and that's when you are in that position of, oh, I'll just add one more needle for this complaint. I'll just do one more thing for this, or even with Chinese herbs, I'll I'll just add this herb also to you know to do this or that instead of a cohesive kind of big picture signal to the body of which direction to head. I think mm-hmm. it it take it makes you less focused. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I think focus is the important piece. And for me, this is why questioning is so vitally important because we need to bring the focus. If if we're focused in our treatment, then regardless of whether the treatment goes well or doesn't go well, we have the opportunity to learn something. Right. They didn't get better. So you know that solid direction you went in was the wrong direction. That's right. Super important. And so that gets to this, that part of it is this Jung thing. It's it's like a set of training wheels. Like, as you know, that it looks kind of a little bit, even even this idea of patterns, which are, by the way, you know, very subjective from practitioner to practitioner, the, the pattern mm-hmm. that you choose to perceive based on that person's chief complaint. So you're taking the pulse, you're, you're, you're looking at the tongue, you're asking questions related to the chief complaint with it at the center. And then from that, you make kind of an executive decision to call it something. And in, you know, TCM style Chinese medicine, you could call that like liver chi stagnation. You could call it kidney yang mm-hmm. deficiency. So then we also, the act of questioning is heading towards the goal of, of, of conceptualizing this pattern in front of me, and we have to name it, or we have to give it something. And so it, for you then, what, what is it, the naming, you're, what are you looking for? Are you going to call it a five element? Are you going to call it a Zongfu diagnosis? What, what, for you, Michael, what, what is the act of questioning heading towards? Okay. So it's a great, uh, th- that is a good question. And I don't think so much about diagnosis these days. All right. I think about hypothesis. These days, I'm, I'm really, you know, I used to be concerned about, oh, I got to get the, the diagnosis right, right? There's a big thing in our profession. Oh, you got to get your diagnosis right. Of course we do. It's super important. But, I, but a diagnosis is kind of a work in progress. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm still clarifying something, you know, maybe a couple treatments, a couple treatments in. So I think of it as a hypothesis, right? It's a hypothesis. Ooh, you know what? I think they've got this really strong yang wood excess, aka gallbladder excess. 
That's why they're so violent, you know, and angry and always shouting out and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So I could look at it as a diagnosis. I can go, I've got this hypothesis. Here's what's going on for this person. What would I do about that? Oh, that's where the treatment comes in. And, you know, what points I want to use or what herbs I want to use, you know, there's plenty of ways to treat. But the trick is first to decide, what am I looking at and how do I know I'm looking at it? And then the naming that you're using, if you're going to give it names at the moment, you're using the, like, for example, wood excess, gallbladder. That, that's, the, 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 that's one way that you're beginning to conceptualize this process for yourself these days, right? I mean, I've got lots of different ways at, at this point. Right. I can use the Sa'am lens to look. I can use palpation to look. I can use some eight extra channels to look. Right. I could use some five-phase energetics to look. I can use Zongfu. I mean, we have lots of lenses that we can use. I think it's less about like which lens I'm using and more about like which are the proper tools. All right. So you were just talking about Dick Cavett yeah. a few minutes ago. You you probably also watched Mission Impossible. Yeah. Like the old Mission Impossible with Peter Graves, right? With the yeah. tape recorder that would blow up. Okay. So that was like way before Tom Cruise. And the great thing about the old Mission Impossibles is they pulled all that stuff off. Nobody knew what happened. There were no gunfights, right? There were no chase scenes. There was were like in, do something, out. Nobody knows what happened. But at the beginning of that Mission Impossible, after he got the mission, he'd like go through the pictures of the different people that he was going to use on his team, right? Like, who am yeah. I going to use? Yeah. Well, you know, we need the tech guy. Oh, yeah, let, let's use that dude, right? Or we need the makeup artist. Oh, we're going to use that dude. And I think Chinese medicine's like that. We get a mission. It's what our patient wants us to work on. And then it's like, what tools am I going to use? That comes from a clear understanding of what's going on. Can we have a clear understanding in the beginning? Eh, I think we have a foggy understanding. That's why you make a hypothesis, choose a tool, treat, see what happens. And you're actually describing two different tool choosing moments, I think, in what you're saying. One is uh, you're choosing the particular current of thinking, shi the current way of perceiving. Like, I'm going to mm. think of this through the lens of, you know, an herbal medicine, maybe, you know, uh, piwei, like spleen stomach theory. Or you could think of it from a one being theory. Or in Chinese, you know, in acupuncture, you can come at it in different ways. That's the first step is, is making a choice in a way about the way you're going to perceive this. And then secondly, the methods you're going to treat it. That comes later. Actually, that comes later. That comes later. Part of the questioning is helping me dial in how I'm going to perceive this. Right, right. Yes. So the questioning is going is is part of that process of even first figuring out the shuapai that you're going to choose to perceive this through or the lens That's or whatever right. phrase you want to call it. Yeah. And then the second, of course, is the the choice of the modality or approach you'll take to treat it. Mm-hmm. But the first step is where the questioning comes in. I like your use of the word hypothesis there. I often say, I, I use a very similar phrase with patients. It's like, you know, acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine is often call and response. So the way that the yeah. patient responds to those first few treatments helps you dial in exactly even how to describe what the heck is going on. And so 
for Dr. Wong then in that in that or in that very fuzzy early stage, just this moment you're talking about when it's certainly more hypothesis than diagnosis. That's a great way to phrase it, I think. Like diagnosis is almost when you write the case study later in retrospect, you have a diagnosis. And at the beginning, you're you're even feeling it out. He is going through that kind of three-dimensional perceiving of Jung thing. And then his approach then, and this is of course then what I'm doing is I have to choose to call it one of the Liu Jing, and I know you've you've debated a million ways how to translate Liu Jing. For now, I'm just going to call translate it, it. I just call it six channels because of the water metaphor and the word channel, mm -hmm. and the fact that it is palpable and real, like a channel of water, fluids in the body. So, but anyway, it doesn't matter. We'll call it Liu Jing. Uh, he's going to call that Taiyin. He's going to call it this is Juyin. That's what this Jung is, and so that's the naming of the of the Jung for him is one of the six channels. And of course, that's highly influenced by the Shanghan Lun. That's where Dr. Wong got that idea that he, of course, applies a little bit more to acupuncture than many people. But but it's still, you just got to call it something. And um, then from that, of course, then we go on down the road. But it, it, there's other other things about questioning. Keep going with what you were saying. I, I can see in your face you want to add something there. <laughs> well, there's always stuff to talk about with that. Yeah. I, I really, I, I want to bring this piece to kind of a close. Okay. Because um, I want to switch and talk about like groovy questions that people ask. We were talking about that in the beginning. Okay. But I, but I first, I first want to wrap this piece up. Um, I'm so appreciative of Dr. Wong's sense of, you know, like, like the atom you were talking about. You get that one thing and then you see how everything spins around it. And of course, that may change. You may, you may start with one thing that seems to be central. And then you get into the process with somebody and realize, oh, that's not central at all. That's the thing that brought them in the door, but there's actually something underneath that. Sometimes I think patients, they will come in with their shoulder pain, but what they're really coming in with is something else. Maybe it's a digestive issue that they've forgotten that they even have because they've had it so long. Maybe it's something psychoemotive. They want to find out, can I trust this cat? before I let the cat out of the bag. Right. So sometimes it is the main complaint that they say is the main complaint, but sometimes that's kind of a, uh, I don't want to say smokescreen. It's more like a test. They want to test and see, are we trustworthy? Yeah. Of what the real deal, of what the real thing is. So they start with something they perceive as relatively simple in their minds first, and then, you know, are willing to, yeah, or safe. You know, that also brings up another thing. There's two potential ways things can go with this is just in that example you just gave, a person has shoulder pain. And so you're then, you know, anterior shoulder pain, you know, the anterior insertion of the deltoid, let's say they're at the top of the shoulder, large intestine 15 area is where they point when they try to laterally, you know, extend their arm and they feel it there. And so you think, okay, you know, that's large intestine channel, what Dr. Wong would call Yang Ming. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the third visit, they're like, yeah, you know, but actually I also have this chronic colitis as well. And so you begin to perceive the fact that their original so-called, you know, chief complaint and their secondary complaint are still both Yang Ming. And so that's one way things go is that a, a given Jung, a given pattern diagnosis in a patient is uh, you begin to perceive in a ever unfolding series of chief complaints that all still seem to come back to Yang Ming. Or, and I think actually this is extremely common as well, a person has a given chief complaint of insomnia, for example, mm -hmm. 
And you begin by calling this some sort of excess, uh, some sort of excess of Xiaoyang or something like that. And the same chief complaint on the third visit is now deficiency of Xiaoyin, the other pivot. So you're kind of like the same chief complaint can change its name, can change its junk, can get become a different channel name while you have this dialogue of hypothesis or really like peeling an onion. Or on the other hand, like I was saying at the beginning there, like two different chief complaints can have the same junk, the same name. And so both of these are possible. It's what makes going to work so much fun is, is beginning. And it, it like, as we've said so many times when we've taught Michael, like so many of these theories of Chinese medicine on paper, when you first encounter them seem kind of beautiful and interesting, but the longer you practice and the more you begin to perceive that this stuff is real and that you just keep seeing these things that people describe happen over and over, the more interesting it is to go to work, but you've got to just like get in the clinic and start doing it to notice that. And yeah, so yeah, and I'm getting off your subject of getting back to questions. Well, uh, we're going to get there. We're going okay. to wind All around. Right. I mean, okay. you know, it's, you know, it's not like we've got a, uh, you know, a schedule here. Okay, good. Although we do have to finish within a certain amount of time. I just want to say one thing about the Liu Jing. Actually, I could say a lot of things about the Liu Jing. Let's say a lot. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And and the thing that you just said about how when we first start learning it, you know, you look at it on paper and it's like really beautiful. It's poetic, right? It's like, ooh, look, it's poetry. Isn't that beautiful? And it, and then I went through a phase where I looked at it and I went, how the hell does all this stuff hang together? Because, I mean, it's kind of beautiful, but like, seriously, what the hell? Yeah. I, it, it's a nice, a lot of these things are really nice ideas, but- they don't hang together in any kind of coherent way. And it just seems like it's arbitrary. But you, you like you were saying, you get in clinic and you work with it and you work with it. And, and after a while, you actually begin to see it in the world. It's not arbitrary. It's another way of perceiving. And I think it takes some time for our sensorium to make those connections where we can take this theory and it becomes an actual way of perceiving. It's no longer theory. We see it unfold in the world. And that gets to that idea of E, which is often translated as thought, associate, you know, the mind associated with the spleen. But we could also, mm. that's sometimes also translated, of course, as intent when you're needling. And as our, as our colleague and friend Dan Binsky likes to say, he would translate that instead as attent. So your E is the things you pay attention to. You said the sensorium there. And so mm -hmm. each of us then, in the process of developing as practitioners and our exposure to different teachers in our own life experience and personality and parents and all the patients we've seen, et cetera, this shaped the things that we choose to pay attention to. And so that's why the act of questioning and everything else is highly individualized. That's the strange thing about our medicine, right? Is that each of us has a different E, each of us has a different A tent that we pay attention mm -hmm. to as we try to perceive something that I'm calling Jung. And that's okay. That's how it's been in the history of Chinese medicine that a given practitioner does it differently. The difficulty with standardization, of course, in our field and research, that's a, I can see that as a problem right there. Well, because you can't pin it down. It really, all treatments include the practitioner. You can't, you know, it's like, you can't do a double blind study on acupuncture, right? Because the acupuncturist is present and they're present in their attention, right? You can't take the practitioner out of the treatment. You can't take the influence of the practitioner out of the treatment. Yeah. 
and they may legitimately choose different points and both approaches might get very good results, maybe one faster, maybe one slower, maybe they're both equal. And that is, uh, you know, for better or for worse, that has been within Chinese medicine from the beginning as these currents of thinking that we keep talking about this, these rivers of ideas that branch off the Jing, the channels, the, uh, the classics in this case, and, and, mm-hmm. and inform each other. And I mean, that's what's so much fun to be practicing Chinese medicine right now. And, you know, listening to the podcast you do, I mean, Michael, I'm often get up in the morning in the middle of this coronavirus experience and take a long walk around Seattle before my kids are awake and put on the podcast and listen to geological a lot. And, you know, the really great thing about our time now is that we can all be interacting with these different currents of thinking and not getting focused, as I think you and I've said before, on like who is right and who is wrong, but instead each of us cultivating our own E, our own attention. And this is such a great uh, forum for that, that you're providing here on my walks every morning. So, you know, if any of you out there walking, you know, I'm not trying to, none of us are trying to tell you this is what Chinese medicine is. We're just trying to share different E's so you can develop your own. Exactly. And the goal is to develop our own. It's not to become like someone else. It's to become like us. Yeah. That takes time. It takes time to like grow into a person. You got kids, right? You're watching kids grow up. It takes time to grow into a person. It takes time to grow into being a practitioner. So this, I think, is a good pivot to like questions from other doctors. Because there, let me tell you, man. There are some things I've learned from teachers and from friends over the years. Like one question, let me give you one right now. I mean, I got, I got a list of them here, and, and I'm sure that you have some, and, and, and you know, I want to hear some of your wisdom on this. But there, there's a great question that I got. This is uh, from a buddy of mine, and, and I've watched him in clinic. And instead of asking people like, so are you kind of tidy and meticulous? You won't ask them, right? Because if you're asking someone about themselves, they're good. You know, they've, they've got kind of a, you know, horse in that race, right? right. We all oh, have yeah. a, we all have a uh, persona that we're busy holding up. It just goes with being a human being. So he'll ask it this way. He'll go. So someone who knows you like a good friend or a spouse, would they say that you're a little bit persnickety in particular? <laughs> right. It's like, Oh yeah. Oh, my wife. Oh yeah. She would say, yeah. My wife calls me OCD all the time. Right. Cause I'm, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's very different than saying, so are you like really detail oriented? You mean just the way the question asked is more likely to elicit the way to ask answer. the question is to say someone close to you, like your wife or your coworker, would they say you are, and then X, Y, Z, whatever the question is that you want to ask mm. as a way of making it more intimate in a way and, and less kind of accusatory i almost hear you saying too in some yes in some ways accusatory here's another way to ask it yeah if you ask a woman do you, do you have pms right do you do you have like mood changes before your period no <laughs> right or, or sometimes right. they'll say uh oh, i'm not sure well would your husband say that you have mood changes oh yes <laughs> you know? yeah but it's his fault you'll, you'll get a whole different answer right so ask the question from the perspective of somebody else not from them. That's a good piece of advice. I'll take that one. I like that. Play with it. Yeah. It's really, it, it's really fun. Yeah. To like it, it soften the question in a way. It's, it does soften the question because now they're not talking about themselves. Well, by the way, to throw the question right back at you then. All right. So this person is self-identified through their spouse watching them as being relatively persnickety. What does that mean? Where do you go with that? 
I'm thinking they might have some kind of stagnation around their period. I might need to look at their chi and their blood. No, that was the, the so the the persnickety question, the first one though that that you began with. Is that still a stagnation of chi and blood kind of question? Well, you know, it's different reasons people are persnickety. Right. Right. I mean, some people are. Um, so that's a great question. Some people are very detail oriented, and so they they tend to easily be bothered when things are out of place. We could compare this with the kind of people that others might call lazy or sloppy because they're not so worried about details, right? They're good with big, broad brushstrokes. That's good enough for them. So sometimes I'm just trying to hone in certain like personality aspects because that's going to lead me to one of the organs or channels. Mm-hmm. Right, so if someone's like super meticulous, that's going to lead me toward, in, in my way of thinking these days, yeah, the Shaoyang. Okay. The triple burner in particular. Triple burner types tend to have this like super laser focus. They're very, very detail oriented. You know, the other end of that counterbalance, I'm talking some um, acupuncture here, would be the liver. The liver is kind of like, oh, I don't care. Like, whatever, man. I mean, they're just... You know, it's yin wood. Yin wood is like dark and a little gloomy and Hmm. a little foggy and kind of shut in. Kind of a Zhuyin Xiaoyang Biaoli, internal, external kind of person. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There you go. Okay. Yeah. And so then, yeah, so the questioning, so the art then I think you're describing is, I mean, again, we, we... you know, we certainly know from from talking to you here that, you know, dialogue is one of your great strengths. And so this idea of questioning is really probably near and dear to you because you're actually very good at it. And so what you're trying to do, I think, as a clinician, it sounds like, is to to have a strategic way to ask questions that give you diagnostic input, while at the same time appearing almost casual and interviewish in in the in the process, right? Like you're you're like sneaking it out of the person. You're getting in there by a di- a, by a, diagno- a dialogue skill that you have. So the way that I run the podcast, the, the way that I talk on the podcast is exactly the way that I speak in my clinic. How did I learn how to ask questions in a podcast interview? Yeah. It's from my clinical experience. I just treat any conversation I ever hear on the podcast like I would talk to a patient. This is just kind of how I roll. Curiosity. Is there... Is it, I roll on curiosity. I would say that's true. And am I being strategic? There's an element of it that is strategic. But where does the strategy come from? The strategy comes from like what lens am I looking through? It's like the lens informs what I see and what I ask. That's and sometimes, important. I mean, often, often, you know, I'm sitting with a patient, it's like, I don't know what's going on. How the hell am I supposed to know what's going on with this person, right? And so I like tried looking from a couple different points of view, yeah, you know, and see which one starts to like click for me, yeah, you know, much in the same way you do palpation, right? And you find something, and you go, "Ooh, what's this?" I'm waiting for something to come up in me where I go, "Ooh, I want to know more about that." Yeah, and you're also just describing, I think, the fact that you're interviewing in the clinic and interviewing here with with us uh, is the same kind of attitude. Is that you're, you know, you're just trying to, in both cases, just kind of be yourself, be curious, like, you know, just be where you want to be. And then you follow that person's 
signs and symptoms through questioning because you're, it's almost like you're hanging out in your living room with a person talking to them. It, but it brings you, it brings you at some point to actually diagnostic decisions. So there is a little difference between like hanging out with a friend and hanging out with a patient because there is a strategy, there's an art to getting something so called and I, you know, I love uh, useful while mm-hmm. also, um, you know, not being a pain in the butt, like over-focused kind of person who's just like not listening to what the person's trying to tell you. There's the, that's the other side if you're not careful. Yeah, just having a patient talk does not equal useful conversation. Right. We've all seen this in our clinic when people rattle on and on and on. Got to learn how to shut people up too. Well, that w- when we were talking about this idea of questioning, uh, you know, a couple months ago, we also talked about this idea of Kai open pivot close you know, which mm. is within the movements of the channels and the Neijing and the movements of nature, of course, and Taiji. And the idea that you could almost think of questioning as having open questions where you really mm-hmm. don't really care where it's going. You just let it roll. You just let it go. Those are open questions. You've, you've thrown the water. You've, as you said, with fishing, you've thrown it into the, into the river. You've thrown the, the, the bobber in there and you're fishing. You don't care. Then there's the pivot questions where you're trying to like either change the subject or go deeper into one of the things they said, because you had some uh, experiential uh, reason, because that kind of question, that, that thing they said made you think of something that reminds you of other patients in your own E, your own experience. So you went down that exactly. direction. And then there's the closing questions where you're like making, it's almost, then you almost are to like a yes, no place. Look, all right. Do you wake up, when you wake up at night, are you sweating or not sweating or feeling warm at least or not warm? That's kind of a yes, no. So that's like the closing question at the end of which you're going to probably move on to another subject. So this idea of open pivot close within questioning is really useful. You brought that up and I think it's been, I've been thinking about it since it's been pretty cool that you do have this. I think that's a really, I appreciate your observation of that using open pivot close. Cause I think that's true. I think, I think we, yeah, I, I really think it is true. And all y'all's listening out there, you might want to consider that, that when you are using questioning in your clinic, just to check in with yourself, am I, am, is this an opening question? Am I casting a wide net to see what's out there? Is this a pivot question? I'm setting a hook. Is this a closing question? It's like a yes, no, or we're getting down to the nitty gritty and ready to move into something else. I think that framework makes a lot of sense, Jason. Yeah. Well, uh, I thank you. I mean, somehow you and I together talked about this and it came up. Uh, I'm interested in that. This, I cannot think this stuff up on my own. I always need yeah, like someone to talk to about this. My brain doesn't work that well by itself. It works better when I'm with other people. So uh, I want to hear more from the list in front of you of other questions. Tell me more of those. Okay. Go there for All a right. Here's a great one. Okay. Here's a great one. You're going to love this. Everybody's going to love this one. Everybody's had the experience of a patient coming in saying, well, I'm now taking krill oil or, you know, whatever, you know, the latest thing is because, you know, my cousin said, that it's good for blah, blah, blah. Or it's like, well, you know, I was going to take those herbs, but, you know, I looked on the, you know, internet and it said that it was, you know, useful for blah, blah, blah. Or I've got this friend who says, and they put like all this weight on this other source, usually a person. Let's leave the internet out of it for the moment. Okay. You know, my cousin said this, my friend said that, my sister, blah, 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 you know, about the work that you're trying to do with Chinese medicine. And so, Rather than try to argue with them or, you know, like re-educate them so that they know what the real deal is, you just go, oh, that's nice. Um, So your cousin has studied Chinese medicine. (laughs) 
And the person goes, no, they haven't. And then you just go on from there. You just like drop it, just immediately close it and go on. That's you don't a have closer. to say anything else. Yeah. That's, that's a closer, closer question. That's a closer question. That's a, that's a yes and or no question. It's a yes or no question. And it shuts that down. It's like, oh yeah, actually my cousin, they don't know anything about Chinese medicine. Oh, okay. Let, you know, you just, you don't even comment on it because they just, in their mind, they now know, yeah. actually their cousin doesn't know Jack about this. Right. So maybe I'll set that aside myself for the moment. So then you'd move on to another opening question, hopefully. It's like this idea then you of move a, on to like another opening fish question. and open. There you go. So those are some some quite oh, and, and here's another great one. Okay. This this is one that I learned like really early on when I was in school. So you get all the way through the interview, and at the very end, you ask, Is there anything else that you'd like to tell me that you haven't mentioned to any other practitioners? Yeah. And Whatever comes out could be a lot of directions there. It could go in many different directions, but sometimes there'll be something that they've either stopped talking to practitioners about or no one's asked them. It, you know, they usually have their regular spiel of what they're talking about when yeah. they go to see a doctor. And, and a lot of times, I'm sure you've seen this. I know I've, it happens all the time to me where people will say things like, well, you know, I, I wouldn't tell this to my doctor, but I'm going to say this to you. Yeah. And of course that it's always fun to like use a pivot question there of like, well, why wouldn't you tell your other doctor? <laughs> yeah. A patient the other day has been seeing a lot more ghosts recently. So yeah, that just wouldn't come up in a regular doctor's appointment maybe, but she brought it up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, you know, and the other thing I think about at the, you know, at the end, this is just in the initial consultation where you ask, is there anything else um, that you'd like to say that you that you maybe have not told any other doctors? It, it is an invitation for them just to bring anything else out. Yeah. So it, it both opens in a way, but it also closes and, and lets them know, all right, we're about ready to get to work here. But if, if, there's, if there's still something lingering, it's a, it's a lovely invitation. Speak now or forever hold your peace a little bit. But, but also, yeah, an invitation is a better way to put that. Yeah, I think it is more invitation. You know, Michael, and that reminds me of another process of this asking thing we're talking about, the, stepping back again to the kind of the meta process of what we're doing is the way I do this in, in, you know, in my clinic every day is I'm going through this steps we're that I've been describing of trying to perceive a jung through asking and palpation, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, almost, you know, and also kind of having open pivot question, closed questions, kind of as we've said here. But all of this in the end is a fairly kind of intellectual process where you're very much, yes, you're engaging your hands with your mind in the process of questioning. But it's still, we're, we're in the level of what you, I think, call the meat sack in a way. We're in the level of everyday stuff. And then there's another step to this that I do, and I have trouble describing this to students, and I do it with every patient in a different way a little bit. And I think anyone, if you think about it, you might be doing this yourself, is after I've gone through all that process, even then I'm often like, all right, I think it's Yangming. It, it could be Juyin. It, you know, the, these two, I'm not really sure. And I go over and I begin to take the cotton balls out and I begin to fumble with the needles and I empty my mind. I stop thinking. I stop asking questions. And in a way, what that is, is asking an even broader question, allowing for a moment of insight to come in. And I think I'm doing that in the same way that you're saying, is there anything else? Uh, I mean, listen to me. I just, I never quit talking. So I need to remind myself to just be quiet 
and that includes internally, cognitively, be quiet. And I, I, I say what I'm doing in a way is like taking everything we've done so far, all the things I've been thinking, and I throw it up in the air and I go over here. And then in that moment, and I think you're asking, you're asking a, a question that probably facilitates the same thing. The person will either say a random thing while you got, while you shut up. Oh, by the way, also, you know, my right toe right here has been hurting and they point like to liver three or something, or they, you know, they say, oh yeah, I've got this itch, you know, in this spot that is right on an acupuncture point or something random pops out of their subconscious. And that then is a form of questioning itself is by opening. And you're like, okay, it's Yangming because they, they gave you some symptom or sign that really reminds you of Yangming. And so that or another thing that happens in that moment, either the patient will say a random thing like that, that steers me in a direction, or if I just get quiet and just loosen up and, and just kind of soften and quit trying to figure this out, I will go, oh yeah, young me, of course. And this is, a, I think, another form of questioning. I don't know who we're asking the question to, but an answer is often given if you just quit thinking for a minute too. Have, have you noticed that? Or maybe that's what you're saying. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, yeah. So what I was saying with this question, is there anything else? That really is for the patient, just to take a moment and see if there's anything else. Now, what I heard you just talking about is also that question, is there anything else? But you're not asking the patient, you're asking yourself. You're taking a moment in that silence to see what else there might be. I do the same thing. Yeah. I will get up and like you said, I fumble for the cotton balls. I go to get my needles and it's like, all right, where... Do we begin? Just what is this? And I'm waiting for something to move inside of me that goes, there it is. Mm. Patients will often ask me as I'm getting up to do the needles. They'll go, what are we doing today? Right. Do, do your patients do that too? What I are we doing that. today? Right. Yes. So you know what I end up saying? Yeah. What do you say? I say, let's find out. Is that, is that encouraging or discouraging to the patient when you say that? I have no idea. <laughs> I just know that it's true. And what's more, I'm okay with it. If they're not okay with it, they might need to see another practitioner. But I know that it's true. And I know that it's trustworthy. And I know that I'm okay with it. 
and the longer they've seen you, the more they understand that's that's the process. That's this uh, hypothesis thing you're saying about the treatment itself. And even during the treatment, there's not it's not like you decide in reality what you're going to do at the beginning of the treatment. I'm the same way. You know, I have in my thinking, I'm going to choose the channel that fits the chief complaint. I'm going to uh, determine if it's excess or deficient. I would probably choose a lead point pair. And that's about as far as I'll get. And then everything else is a dialogue during the treatment. Other things come up as well. That's right. So the treatment itself is a dialogue, a set of questions, an inquiry, and listening to the response we get. Yeah. So no wonder the work is so fun. Yeah. I mean, it's you never just, the same. No. And even the same patient with the same chief complaint has a different response and a different answer. So the jung is maybe changed. Yeah. There's no protocols. They're the enemy. I would agree that protocols are the enemy. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you have a protocol, then you're no longer present, right? You're just doing, you're in the, I guess you're in the past or the future, but you're not in the present because you're just doing something that's oh, a protocol for this complaint. So yeah. How, how do so we here's keep the thing that about protocols. Alive? Yeah. Here's the thing about protocols that are hard for me. Okay. Protocol assumes that you know what's going on. Maybe a protocol is right for a certain thing if it is that certain thing, but how do you know it's that certain thing? Yeah. So this, this is another thing, and this is questioning I ask myself. So it, it's really easy to have confirmation bias. Oh, I think it's this. I think it's that. You know, they got these symptoms, that lines up. I like to feel like I know what I'm talking about, and I like to feel like I'm a competent human being. Right. So it's really easy to fall into that mind frame of, oh, yeah, I think it's a Shaoyang issue. I see all these Shaoyang signs over here. So, of course, it's a Shaoyang issue. Let's, uh, you know, let's go after that. Right. Yeah. How do you avoid it? Tell me some of your strategies. So, so here, here's what I've started doing. Whenever I decide, oh yeah, it's this. I see if I can find conflicting evidence to prove that it's not. I try to disprove my hypothesis before mm. I start the treatment. Yeah. And if I can't just prove it, then I'm pretty, then I'm more certain that, yeah, this is the right thing. But if I can fairly easily disprove it, oh shit, now I'm back to square one. So the act of disproving is what? More questions, palpation, different pulse? Like, tell me your, some of your yeah, strategies so, for disproving. And of course, it varies. So pulse is one for sure. Yeah. And sometimes it's things like, okay, so I think that they're this, again, I'm using some, I'm um, thinking here, they're this like liver excess, like super easy going, things don't really rile them up. They don't pay a lot of attention to details. Maybe I think they're that kind of a person. Right. And, I, and I'm going to start to treat them as such. So now I'm going to push back on that and I'm going to see if I can prove to myself that they actually do pay exquisite attention to things. Mm. And I'm going to ask about like how they are in, you know, with their family or ask how they are when they're like doing their work, trying yeah. to prove to myself that, oh, they pay a lot of attention to things. And if I can't prove that, then it's like, okay, so I think they are liver excess. They don't pay a exquisite attention to details. I'm I'm more sure that I'm correct in my hypothesis. But if, if I if if I find out that oh yeah man be, it's like they're the people go to for proofreading and they're the people that you know when you need the eyes dotted and the t's crossed they're the people that are called on. Yeah. Then that would just prove my hypothesis. And then I've and then I've got to rethink what I'm doing. It's a yin and a yang. Now we talked about open pivot closed. We talked about three. Now you're talking about two, a yin and yang of questioning in a way. Like you have the questioning you're doing to, to get to what you think is the thing. And then you flip it around and test the opposite, test the yin or That's right. side of it. 
and see if that side also matches up and then you're more likely to be on some sort of useful direction. That's, that's a, a cool use of questioning. It's like meta, yeah, questioning at a different level. So you're taking questioning mm-hmm. from checkers to chess here. Very nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, and it just helps me to stay more honest with myself. Yeah. It's great. I'm, I'm super easy to fool, man. I'll fool myself into anything. Yeah. And then of course that, I mean, for me, I should probably be doing that with questioning more, but I'm absolutely doing that through palpation too. You know, the person's telling me things and I'm convinced it's this and the palpation is saying, shut the heck up. It's not that stop. And then that then would shape my questioning in a different direction. But this idea of, of also testing the opposite, I'm going to be using more. I think that's another additional layer I can do to kind of triangulate when the palpation isn't matching what I'm thinking too. So this is great. I think the triangulation is important and whether you're doing it with words, like I just described, or you're doing it with palpation in the way that you do it, uh, you can use anything to do that. Right? Something to test your, your bias, which you said. Yeah. Something to test our bias is the thing. And then, and then I got one more thing for you and then we can wind. Well, actually, and then I want to hear some of your, some of your questions and then we'll wind it down. So I, I got one more thing questioning. And this one's from me. This is something I've learned over the years. So when, People come in and you ask them how they're doing and they say, I'm better. I used to just like check off. Oh, good. They're better. Right. And I like pat myself on the back. Ooh, Michael Max, you know what you're doing, right? I no longer do. I no longer check it off. Just like, oh, better. I never do that. I go, oh, you're better. How do you know you're better? And I do that for two reasons. One, sometimes people just want to be nice and they want, you know, they want to think like, you know, they want to be the good patient. So yes, you're helping. Thank you. I'm better. But if they can't describe how they're better, then I know that they're not. Yeah. Or they may be saying they're better in one thing, which you didn't even think was the chief complaint too, right? Other information could come up. It also tells me if they can describe how they're better, how it's changed, it gives me more information about what's going on. Yeah. It's happening at a different time of day or the nature of the pain has shifted or they're waking at now a different time of day or they're now they feel rested or not. That kind of detail within the better is important initial questioning. Yeah. So that's, um, I think if there's anything that I've learned over the years that I've done this, I would say that's my favorite question that I've come up with. How do you know something's better? Or likewise, you could say, you know, they're worse. Okay. How do you know it's worse? That's a great opening question. Yeah. That's a fishing casting the net really broadly kind of question. They mm-hmm. can go wherever they want with this one. You don't need a yes or no. And they can say whatever they want. Yeah. So that's that's for me. So I'm curious for you, have you got any like special secret questions that you've learned or that over the years you've learned from other people that you find yourself trotting out in your conversations with your patients? Well, I probably have way more than I'm aware of. This is a little bit of self-awareness. I mean, I, I'm sure that that, that's why it's also really nice to have students observing you in the clinic because they're like, why the heck did you ask that question? And you don't even realize that it was happening. But I'd, I'd say that one of my very favorites that I would say um, has a variety of clinical applications is, and I'm sure other people do this, so I'm not acting like this is a magic secret, but just reminding you to do it is to ask a person when they feel a certain emotion that they've described, often anxiousness or fear, is where they feel it. And, mm. and it, like have them localize that, 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 you know, that, that psychological complaint, because really I think our great strength for treating emotional patterns is of course, localizing it within a certain channel organ system. And by them pointing to a certain spot, it really helps. Cause you know, some people 
I, I would say that I think about the clinical, you know, experience that you have, that people probably have two, maybe three primary areas where they say, if you're feeling really stressed, where do you feel it? Most people will say they uh, feel it like in their neck and shoulders. They, they feel their, mm-hmm. oh, that would be, all right, maybe there's three or four. Anyway, another might be they feel it in their heart and chest. They can feel like a little weight or a clinching or a heart racing, or they're aware of their heartbeat would be a way to phrase it. And another major category of people, and you wouldn't think to ask this, they say that they feel the emotion and they point to their stomach. And so this yes. gets into what I women think is- Women more the, than men. Women more than men? Yeah, okay. Um, and it, it's that interesting tendency, I think, in our modern clinics to see so many what I call Yangming patterns. So, so many psycho-emotional patterns, which aren't the heart. You know, it's not a fear with a kidney. It's a Yangming. It's a lack of letting go intestinal kind of thing where the person feels it. They feel butterflies in their stomach is another way they might describe it. And so when that happens, when they point there, another kind of follow-up question, then this is kind of now I've, that was kind of an opening question, that idea of where you feel it. A pivot then would be, I don't know if, anyway, the next question would be, all right, do you clench your teeth? You know, do you have tightness in your jaw? And then that's a kind of confirming or denying, yeah, this is, I should be going in a Yangming direction. If they say, yeah, you know, then you might go up and palpate their sternocleidomastoid muscles on the side of their neck, that Yangming zone. And that's another step towards confirming. And of course, distally palpating the stomach channel down on the legs and feet there. So this, those, that, that opening question of where you feel emotions can send you down a few directions. Of course, they say shoulders, you then go maybe in a Shaoyang direction and palpate the Sanjiao and see if it's that channel that has the stagnation or, you know, if they, uh, so you know what I mean? So that, that idea of where they feel emotion, right? And I, and I think this is such an important question because so often, number one, emotions seem globalized. Number two, I mean, I have patients come in, you know, ask them what's going on. Well, I got anxiety and they expect me to know what anxiety means. I got no idea what anxiety means. I'm not a psychologist. Right. And actually, I don't think they know what anxiety means. It's just someone told them they had anxiety, or they think they have anxiety, or their cousin told them they had, or they took an internet quiz that said they have anxiety. When people say they've got anxiety, I go, you know, I don't know what the hell that is. And so that, and so that question, I often ask them, well, what kind of anxiety do you have? How do you know you're anxious? Yeah. And um, where do you and, feel? And I love your question. Where do you feel it? I'm going to start asking that one. Yeah. That's great. That I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to use it this afternoon. It's one that, yeah, I use a lot. And it, it's really often, uh, to be even more specific, differentiating in psycho-emotional patterns where you're not really sure, is it like liver? These can be liver-type people who are more likely to feel it in that Shaoyang pathway up on the on the shoulders. They, their neck tenses up. That's Julian Shaoyang, the kind of gallbladder excess I think you're describing, or wood excess. And the mm-hmm. other is that Yangming. These two closing channels both get stuck and emotions are in them and, and a lot of my patients. And so that question is often helpful in bifurcating in that decision tree is between Yin and Yangming, for example. That's really interesting what you just said, that both of those are closing channels. Yeah. Like open, pivot, close. Open, pivot, close. Kai Hoshu, they're hood. Those, they, those are both closing channels and that's where emotions get stuck. Well, that's the thing about that character, huh? which is a very strange character. It's the gate radical on the outside and the inside is, is it, it, from what I've seen in the, in the sinological discussions, it's like a cup of blood in a gate and that's the character we translate as clothes? Like what the heck is a cup of blood in a gate? You know, it's like closing in on it. 
So he is not the same character that we use to close a doorway in like modern Chinese, like Quanmen or something like that. So it's like, I, I, and the more I think about this, I think the word close is, is problematic. It's really more completing. So Yang Ming mm-hmm. is Yang completing as it heads towards Yin. And Juyin is like the Yin completing before it Jue, before it reverts up towards Yang, whether it be Taiyang or Xiaoyang maybe. And so then these two channels that are trying to complete Yin or Yang and if you just think of like basic TCM style, they tend to get stuck. Constipation, the the, the mm-hmm. greatest hit of all time, liver cheese stagnation diagnosis, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stomach fire even is a type of yang excess. And so these 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 channels tend to get stuck and then emotions follow chi. So then yeah, don't you see this clinically, those two as well? I I do I hadn't put it in quite the frame that you just put it in, yeah. but I listen to you talk about it and I go, oh, this is this is making sense. Now I need to watch and observe it unfold in front of me. You know how we were talking earlier that that you hear things or we learn things, and then eventually we actually watch them unfold in the world, right? Because they're there. So so I watch for that. That makes sense, and I love that instead of calling it closing, we call it completion. That's something else that I will look for in my work. That sound intuitively, that sounds right. So I'm just going to go into clinic and I'll I'll test it out. And you know, we we should probably come back. I don't know, maybe come back in six or eight months and talk about open open pivot closed a little more and talk about if you've noticed. Remember what I've just handed you, Michael, is a different pair of shades to put on in the clinic to, through which to look at your patients. So. This is a pair of like purple sunglasses that you can look at this closing thing and compare it and contrast it to the sunglasses you normally have on when you enter the clinic and see if this pair of shades gives you some interesting views. I'm looking forward to it. Maybe I'll get myself a Dr. Wong hat too. Yeah, get a white hat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my friend, it's always a pleasure to hang out with you and, and chew the fat. And share ideas and inspire each other. That's what uh, you're doing here. And I, I really appreciate the uh, the act of having these dialogues because I think many of us around the world, in fact, are listening and, and having the dialogues with each other and you know cultivating this idea of currents of thinking is, is so much what you're doing. So thanks for that. It's it's fun to be inspired by you and all the guests you have here too. Well, our Chinese medicine is based in dialogue, right? I mean, you think back to you know Huang Di Neijing. What was it? It's like the podcast of its day. <laughs> yeah, there you are, Huang Di. Well, I'm no Huang Di, but uh, <laughs> an aspiring Huang Di Dick Cavett. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go with Dick Cavett. Huang Di's a that's 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 a bit of a stretch. Okay. Anyway, okay. okay. Thanks, my friend. We'll be in touch soon. Yeah, great being here. Thank you, Mike. You know, a good question can sometimes work just like an acupuncture needle. It opens the world up in surprising ways and has an invigorating effect on the spirit. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Jason as much as I did. And this topic of questions, well, we'll circle back on this one again because it's such a vital part of our practice. I'd love to hear from you on this topic as well. Is there a question that you find yourself asking over again in clinic? A question that you found essential in your practice? Or is there a question that you've heard a teacher or a friend use and you wish that you'd thought of that as it helps you so much in your clinical work? I'll be doing a follow-up episode on questions, so email me with the enlivening questions that you found or turn on the recording function of your computer and tell me about it. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, 
If you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.